Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 19, reading the entirety of the chapter. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they departed from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mount. And Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. And now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession from among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And Moses came and called toward the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Lo, I come to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and they shall wash their garments, and they shall be ready for the third day. For the third day Yahweh will come down before the eyes of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And you shall set bounds to the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves not to go up to the mount or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mount shall be surely put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount to the people, and he sanctified the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near a woman. And it came to pass on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of a trumpet exceeding loud and all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the bottom part of the mount. And Mount Sinai, the whole of it, smoked because Yahweh descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet waxed louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. And Yahweh came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mount. And Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mount. And Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to gaze, and many of them perish. And the priests also, who come near to Yahweh, shall sanctify themselves, lest Yahweh break forth upon them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you charged us, saying, Set bounds about the mount and sanctify it. And Yahweh said to him, Go, go down, and you shall come up, you and Aaron with you. And the priests and the people shall not break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break forth upon them. And Moses went down to the people and said it to them. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Father in heaven, illuminate unto us the paths of righteousness by your word and spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, Abe posted a picture on Facebook in relation to a plumbing fix under a sink in his home, which he'd anticipated taking about an hour, which all told turned into a six-hour job. I readily commented that sounded like every plumbing job I'd ever attempted and that he had my sincerest sympathy and empathy. It's become somewhat standard that I'll inevitably make the plumbing issue worse before making it better or getting it finally resolved. I won't speak for Abe, but given my limited knowledge for such things, it typically comes down to the fact that there's more involved with the job, whether that means having the correct parts or tools to do the work, which can vary, but, but inevitably it's more complicated once I get in there and try to solve the issue. Well, in a similar fashion, Exodus 19 is a bit like that in that there's, there's quite a bit more going on here than we might first realize. It's a more complicated text once you even get into the details of it, which can prove challenging of, and, you know, challenging of what to make of it, how to understand it, and so forth. Well, given this nature of the text was part of the reason for considering some of the broader theological uh, themes and connections last week, which will hopefully prove to be useful today as we make our way through more of the specifics. Truth be told, we could probably even spend a third week here, but we'll endeavor to glean as much as we can and, and move on. But at the outset, let's be thinking in terms of, of covenant, of how God relates to his people and how the elements of a covenant are fundamentally present here and that this text about Israel before Yahweh at Sinai provides further instruction regarding our relationship to Jesus as the church. Verses 1 and 2 provide us with some important chronological and geographical information. On the third new moon after coming out, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, in that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, and Israel encamped there in front of the mountain. So what is a new moon? Well, it's another way of saying it's a new month. And the mention of the third month is the first, is, it's the first of a few threes that we encounter in this chapter. While scholars differ as to how to interpret this reference to the third month, it seems best to take it as month number three, as in relation to the Exodus taking place in month one. So the arrival at Sinai is day one of month three, approximately 42 days after the Exodus. This means that in eight days, it will be 50 days after the Passover, which later becomes the feast of uh, called Pentecost. We noted some Pentecostal themes of the text last week, and with part of the sequence of events, and one order of these events even places the Sinai uh, theophany when Yahweh uh, descends in the cloud and fire upon the mountain uh, mountaintop as taking place on the 50th day, which again would later be known as Passover. Also with the number three, you may recall from past studies that it has to do with a preliminary judgment. It's not quite halfway through a week. Uh, still more, there are death and resurrection connotations related to the number three in Scripture. In verse 11, the instructions given by Yahweh to Moses for the people, he tells them to get ready because he's going to visit them on the third day. And the text makes a point of emphasis that uh, in in what we read. So that's, that's a bit of the chronology here that we can be thinking about. Now, what about some of the geography? 
Well, it seems likely that Rephidim and Sinai aren't that far apart. Uh, based on some rough calculations I was doing the other day, given proposed locations, Rephidim may have been about 10 miles or so to the north of Sinai. Still more, there's an area east of Sinai which constitutes a valley where Israel likely encamped, which matches what we established last week of Israel being arranged to the east and then having to move west into God's presence, which was then recapitulated in the tabernacle arrangement for their worship. So the scene is set, and then in verses uh, 3 through the first part of verse 8, that basically constitute Moses' first ascension to Yahweh and then descension back to the people. And Moses' role as mediator between Yahweh and the people begins to be demonstrated. Verses 3 and 4. And Moses ascended to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and declare to the sons of Israel, You saw what I did to Egypt and how I carried you upon wings of eagles and brought you to me. First of all, notice that Yahweh refers to his people as the house of Jacob and the sons of Israel. The house of Jacob is only used two times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The second time is here, and the first is in Genesis 46, where we read of Jacob being brought to Egypt. All the souls belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his, uh, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the souls of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So the house of Jacob has significantly grown since that time. It has indeed become a nation. What does the name Jacob mean? Heel grabber. So you have the house of heel grabber. The name sons of Israel has been used often throughout Exodus and is a way of referring to Jacob's descendants, of course. And what does the name Israel mean? Well, God's wrestler. And so the people are considered sons of God's wrestler, which alludes to their own identity as priests, as those who are to wrestle with God on behalf of the world and with the world itself. But then... In what's said here, where does Yahweh begin? Of what does he remind the people? How he dealt with their enemy. How he procured their salvation and what he did to Egypt. And all the plagues, uh, even the destruction of Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. Then he tells them that he carried them upon wings of eagles. Now what does that imagery entail? Well, they're having to walk through the desert and wilderness and needing water and food hardly seems like flying. Well, the implication seems to be that when eaglets are, or baby eagles are learning to fly, the, the parent will carry them on their back. And not to sound hokey, but there's a sense that Israel is learning to fly. Uh, they're being trained to mature, as it were. And this not only provides help to the baby eagle, but also a measure of protection. For instance, if someone was hunting eagles and shooting from below, uh, the hunter would hit the parent, but not uh, the baby. And so that that may even be part of the imagery uh, here as well. Uh, There are other instances of wings providing protection in Scripture. And even the Israelites' robes had wings, as we see demonstrated in the book of Ruth, and even at the scene with Boaz at the threshing floor. Or when the woman reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, she touches the wing of it and she's healed. 
One of the four faces of the cherubim is that of an eagle. And of course, they are winged creatures, the cherubim themselves, and will be uh, represented in the tabernacle artistry. Some of the further implication, uh, implications may be that as the cherubim fly around in heaven, so an eagle flies in the heavens, and that's where God's people are, even as rulers, and there's, we can even make allusions to sun, moon, and stars, and so forth. That might be more than you expected, but again, there's a lot here. And then Yahweh's specific to say that He brought you, Israel, to me. So where are they? Sinai. Yahweh is equated with Sinai. And further fulfilled is the promise to Moses all the way back in chapter 3 and verse 12 when Yahweh tells him, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So again, and be sure to, to hear this point. Yahweh begins with what He's done for Israel. That's a key ingredient for a covenant. Verses 5 and 6. And now if you utterly hear my voice and keep my covenant, and you will be to me a treasured possession from all the people, for to me is all the earth. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you will speak to the sons of Israel. So Yahweh's message to the people through Moses, and, and, and note that it is a mediated message, is one of hearing and keeping, or hearing and obeying the covenant. And the concept of hearing in Scripture isn't simply that sound enters the ears and the brain registers the words. It isn't simply listening. Rather, the implication of hearing is that it results in obeying. Parents, you may know something of this when you call to your children or ask them to do something and there isn't any movement on their part uh, to do what you said, especially if they're in a different room. What's a question you might follow up with? Did you hear me? See, hearing goes along with obedience, and that's clearly the case here. And while we don't have all the stipulations for the covenant yet, nevertheless, what does Yahweh say will come about as a result of obedience? Blessing. Israel will be Yahweh's possession, valued property, peculiar treasure, which sounds peculiar to us, but peculiar, not meaning odd, but distinctive or special. Uh, there, there's probably even some royal implications of this. Uh, Yahweh is their king, and his people Israel are his most prized possession. Uh, they're a king's treasure. And Israel has this distinction, this identity, in contrast with all the other nations on the earth, all of which also belong to Yahweh. You know, perhaps we fall into the mistaken thinking that Yahweh wasn't the king over all the nations in the Old Testament, that it wasn't until Jesus that he rules and reigns over all nations, but that's mistaken. You know, this verse tells us otherwise, as do a plethora of other texts. Uh, Psalm 47, uh, just being one example, where God is described as a great king over the, all, all the earth, king of all the earth, God reigns over the nations, and the shields of earth, which represent uh, the nations, belong to God. But Israel is set apart from all of the others. They're the only nation with whom Yahweh enters into a covenant in this fashion. Moses is also to inform the people that they will um, they will be a kingdom of priests, which echoes back to Adam's original calling to take dominion, to rule and subdue the earth, as well as the orders he was given to serve and guard the garden sanctuary. 
Yahweh's placing this identity upon a nation, his people, and they're particularly set apart for these purposes, given this identity in their calling to Yahweh and for the world. This was to be Moses' message to the people. Therefore, we read in verse 7, first part of verse 8, And Moses came and called to the elders of the people and set before them all the words, these which Yahweh commanded him, and answered all the people together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. So Moses goes and delivers the message. And notice that as Yahweh called Moses, verse 3, now Moses calls the elders, verse 7. Again, clearly he's being portrayed in this mediatorial role. But the elders also represent the people. And one way to understand the first part of verse 8 is that they speak on behalf of the people. You know, their answer is that of all the people. And that could be, or we're to understand that the elders took Moses' message to the people and then they responded with their commitment to obey all that Yahweh has spoken. Either way, the people are agreeing to the terms of the covenant. Well, that brings us to what is roughly the next section in the latter part of verse 8 through verse 15. And this is where things get a bit more complicated, but let's endeavor to keep working at the text. The latter part of verse 8, And Moses brought back the words of the people to Yahweh. Now, this is a presumed ascension and constitutes Moses' second one in the text. But isn't it interesting that Moses reports back to Yahweh what the people said? Even though he's Yahweh, he's God, he, and he already knows, yet Moses serves, again, this function, and the text is clear to give this detail. And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in darkness of the cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak to you and believe in you forever. And Moses declared the words of the people to Yahweh. Now, we're probably to understand the last lines of verses 8 and 9 is recounting the same thing. Moses brings the word, uh, brings the words of the people. Uh, Then Yahweh speaks, and then Moses declares the words of the people. But notice an important point that Yahweh makes. The key reason that he's coming uh, to come in the cloud, that he's going to come in the cloud, that the people may hear Yahweh speaking... But to what end? That they may believe in Moses forever. Yahweh doesn't say that they may believe in me, Yahweh, forever, but in Moses forever. We have to understand the practical purpose that serves. The people have already questioned Moses' leadership, accusing him of bringing them into the wilderness to kill them, etc., Well, if Moses goes up on the mountain and comes back down saying, Thus saith the Lord but the people aren't convinced the Lord is on that mountain, then they could easily accuse Moses of just making things up. But Yahweh is going to make his presence known, his voice heard, so that the people will believe Moses, that they won't doubt what he says, etc. See, Moses brings the word down. Again, he's the mediator. He's God's voice. And so to believe Moses will be equivalent to believing God. Yahweh establishes that he's speaking first, which then later leads to the people requesting that Moses act as their mediator. Chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And even the language of believing in Moses forever stands true, doesn't it? That Yahweh's word endures, that the word of God, the law of God is to believe, be believed by us. Who, you know, we also believe in Moses. 
Yes, of course, we know it's all Christ's word. Uh, but just appreciate how the text is written here and what's being conveyed. And surely we're to see the ways in which Christ fulfills this imagery, brings the word from God, from the mountain, from heaven, and how he is our mediator, even as he's greater than Moses. Verses 10 to 13. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day Yahweh will descend in the eyes of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And you shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Be on guard to you to go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Those touching the mountain shall be put to death. Do not touch him with a hand, for to stone he shall be stoned, or to shoot he will be shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When gives sound the ram's horn, they shall ascend to the mountain. First, we read about the preparations the people are to make. They're to be consecrated, set apart, made holy, sanctified, and part of which entails washing their garments. Is it because they need to go to church in clean clothes and be looking their best? Well, not quite, uh, but garments are for glory, and they can denote office. But if a garment is dirty, what does it have on it? Dirt. And what does dirt testify since Genesis 3? That man has sinned. See, it's a sign that he's under the curse. And the ground, the earth, the dirt declares this much. And so the sons of Israel were to wash the dirt, which called for death, from them. Now this imagery is later developed in relation to ceremonial uncleanness uh, more fully, but uh, this is a preview of sorts. We, we see the principle here in granular form. Yahweh clearly states he's coming on the third day. Uh, picking up on the three and third theme we noted at the outset. It's coming midweek. He will visibly descend upon Sinai. He will come down for all to see. Second, what does Moses need to do? Set boundaries. We're not told specifically where Moses made clear markers of where the mountain began. You know, if you've ever seen a mountain, particularly a rather large mountain, it's kind of hard to say exactly where the mountain begins because it just, you know, just gradually slopes up. But Moses was to set boundaries. And if man or beast passed the boundary, what was to happen? Well, they were to be stoned or shot with an arrow. But the text is clear to say that the violator is not to be touched, hence the need for some type of uh, projectile. And what we're being presented with here are different areas of access in relation to the mountain, to the place of worship, which will be later reflected in the layout of the tabernacle. You know, recall that the people could only get so close, you know, no farther than the altar. Well, that's the case at Sinai. They can draw near to the lower part of the mountain, but they aren't to go any farther. Later we read of Aaron, his sons, and the elders going up farther than the congregation, and then Moses goes farther still, again, picturing Israel's later practices for worship. But it's clearly the death penalty for anyone who crosses the boundary. You don't approach Yahweh willy-nilly, but according to the parameters that he sets. So Israel's encamped to the east. When they hear the blast of the ram's horn, then they're to approach the mountain up to the set boundary. Verses 14 and 15. And Moses descended from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be preparing for the third day. Do not draw near a woman. So again, Moses goes down, consecrates the people, they wash their garments, and Moses tells them to be preparing 
and then adds, do not draw near a woman. Now, this didn't mean that all the women had to keep their distance from the men or that husbands couldn't be next to their wives, but that they were to refrain from marital relations. Based on what we learned from Leviticus 15, 18, having marital relations constituted ceremonial uncleanness until evening and required bathing in water. Again, while this isn't prescribed in the law yet, Moses gives this instruction for the people to follow so that they wouldn't be considered unclean for this all-important event at the Sinai Sanctuary, which seems to be the point here. And maybe there's some further implications of this, but they're beyond me at the moment. Verses 16 and 17. It was on the third day in the morning, and there were thunders and lightnings heavy upon the mountain, and the voice of the horn very great, and trembled all the people who were in the camp. And Moses caused to come out the people to meet God from the camp, and they stationed themselves at the lowest part of the mountain. A few details in it. Obviously, it's the third day, but also notice that it's in the morning. With all the thunder and lightning and the horn sounding, there wasn't anyone sleeping in or missing worship. And clearly, this was a frightening event. And the horn blast serves as the call to worship. Moses leads the people west to the lower part of the mountain, causes them to come out, which is the same verb used so many times before in relation to the Exodus. And also don't miss that they're going to meet God. Uh, And that might be a detail that we just take for granted, but shouldn't. The scene continues in verse 18. And Mount Sinai smoked all of it from the face of it, descended upon it Yahweh in fire, and ascended his smoke, or the smoke of it, as the smoke of the kiln, and trembled all the mount greatly. Smoke and fire. That's what's portrayed here. That's what you see in your mind's eye. And that's what springs to your imagination when you hear this description. You have the descension of fire, which is Yahweh. So the fire comes down, and then the smoke goes up, which portrays what kind of imagery? What Israel would later see at the tabernacle and the altar. Sinai looks like a huge altar in this moment. Or conversely, the altar would look like a miniature and portable Sinai. And then did you catch the description of the ascending smoke? As smoke of the kiln. Now why that association? Has mention been made of a kiln already in Exodus? Yes, back in chapter 9 and verse 8, in relation to the sixth plague, the boils. Uh, it begins, And said Yahweh to Moses and Aaron, Take to yourselves um, handfuls, fullness of hands, of soot from the kiln, and Moses, throw them to the heavens before the eyes of Pharaoh. See, the, the Israelites were well acquainted with the kiln as it was likely part of their brick-making process when they were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt and building all these buildings and things for him. In Deuteronomy 4.20, Moses tells Israel, But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. So what might be behind this imagery in verse 18? Well, think of it this way. Israel has gone from the smoke and fire of enslavement to the king of Egypt, and now has come to the smoke and fire of the covenant with Yahweh at Sinai, whom they've been freed to serve. As a bit of an aside, the only other time this word for kiln is used in the Old Testament is here, um, Exodus 19.18, and then twice in chapter 9. But then the only other use is in Genesis 19.28, after Yahweh rained down sulfur and fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah. When Abraham looked down upon them, remember, Abraham was on a mountain, It reads, Behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a kiln. 
Now, the more direct association here at Sinai would be back to Egypt in chapter 9. But perhaps there's some theology here to consider of God coming down in fire, even judgment, further indicating that the scene at Sinai is hardly a tamed one. You know, nothing in the text suggests that the people just oohed and awed, pulled out their phones and started videoing what they were seeing to post later on social media. No, I suspect we have a hard time understanding how terrifying it was. And the people's response was right, even as the whole mountain was trembling greatly. The presence of the Almighty God isn't to be taken lightly. Verses 19 and 20. And it was when the voice of the horn going and strengthening greatly, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder, and descended Yahweh upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses ascended. The sequence of verse 19 seems a bit puzzling, but you've got the horn sounding, and the text literally says the sound was walking. Um, I don't know why, but it's an interesting image. We don't think about, of course, sound as walking, but that's the portrayal here. And that it was strengthening greatly. That was getting louder and louder. Both verbs are in a participial form, denoting ongoing action. And that horn blast leads to Moses speaking and Yahweh replying. And we might naturally think, how could Moses be heard over the horn blast? But clearly Yahweh could hear him since he answers in thunder. And it's interesting that Yahweh's response in verse 19 and descent in verse 20 can somewhat be read as a response to what Moses spoke. Now, of course, Moses is responding to the horn blast, the source of which we don't know. Neither do we know what Moses said, but there's a bit of back and forth, a sequence, a dialogue that we can see taking place here in this moment at Sinai, in this worship service. So Yahweh descends upon the top of the mountain, the head of the mountain, And then Yahweh calls Moses up to the top, to the head, and Moses ascends. So this is Moses' third ascension in the chapter. And the way it's expressed in the text, (laughs) no sooner does Moses get up there, than what does Yahweh say? What does he command him to do in verses 21 and 22? Yahweh said to Moses, descend, warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to see, and fall from them many. And also the priests, drawing near to Yahweh, let them consecrate themselves, lest Yahweh break out Upon them. So Yahweh's concern is that the people will cross the boundary and then many of them will be killed as a result. Also, the priests are to particularly consecrate themselves. But who are the priests at this point since Aaron and the tribe of Levi haven't been specifically designated for that purpose yet? Well, probably the firstborn males um, of, of Israel, even as the imagery from the Passover indicates the firstborns being dedicated to God. Whether every firstborn male was considered priest is debatable, but this this connection with the firstborn is key. Because then we need to ask the question, well, but, you know, the tribe of Levi, Aaron, they were made the priests, so when did they lose their priestly status? After the golden calf episode, when they are replaced by the Levites and the sons of Aaron. Yahweh doesn't want these priests getting too close too soon either. We might wonder why these instructions weren't given earlier. Hard to know for sure, but this is the sequence we're presented in the text. In verses 23 to 25. And And Moses said to Yahweh, The people are not able to ascend Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds to the mountain and consecrate it. And Yahweh said to him, Go, descend, and descend you and Aaron with you, And the priests and the people not break through to ascend to Yahweh, lest he break out against them 
And Moses descended to the people and told them. Now, in the, in the sermon notes, I've supplied you with a structure for verses 20 to 25. And uh, you can see there that it's a chiasm. And there actually are a few others earlier in the chapter as well. But this one perhaps helps to understand a bit more clearly what's going on and what's central to the text. In the verses just read, Moses, Moses basically replies to Yahweh uh, that the people can't come up the mountain because the boundary he'd set as Yahweh instructed him to do. Um, he's basically arguing Yahweh's word back to him. But Yahweh's still concerned that the priests and people won't respect the boundary. Now, why might that be? Well, the text doesn't give a further reason, and this is somewhat speculative, but I can't help but think that Yahweh is being extra careful on account of the fact that all of this is new for Israel and that they're still relatively immature as a people. We've noted that on a number of occasions already, particularly in relation to their whining and complaining. And it isn't unlike a child to ignore a boundary and go wherever he or she pleases. Again, this is conjecture on my part, but perhaps it helps to explain why, uh, explain Yahweh's insistence that Moses go back down and ensure that the priests and people don't come too close, that they don't try to follow Moses up the mountain. The mention of Aaron ascending with Moses is a bit puzzling as well, since there's no explicit reference to that later taking place, unless it's an allusion to what happens in chapter 24, um, but I don't know that that seems very likely. Nevertheless, Aaron does seem to be given the same level of access as Moses. And as he'll later be the high priest, then this may be yet another foreshadowing of what's to come. Again, what happens as Sinai prefigures the tabernacle worship, the very zones of holiness, and who can approach God where and when, and only the high priest could enter the holy of holies. The final verse tells us that Moses obeyed, he descended, he went down to the people and told them, which is a fitting end to this section, even if it seems abrupt. Again, Moses is the conveyor of Yahweh's word, the mediator of God's word to them, and that role is clearly established here. Well, what are some final observations we can make, or what are some further implications of the text for us this morning? Well, first of all, as is the case with any covenant that God makes with his people, grace comes first. What he's done the favor he's shown to them. His providing salvation and redemption comes first. Another way to put it is that grace comes before law. Grace comes before commandment. That's always the recipe for a covenant in the Bible. It was true of the covenant with Adam, and it's true with the new covenant with Jesus. And just think about how we encounter that same pattern in some of the New Testament epistles, Paul's letters to the Ephesians and Colossians, uh, perhaps being the most obvious examples. You know, what's the outline for Ephesians? Some of you probably know this by heart by now. Chapters 1 through 3 are indicative, recounting what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have accomplished in redemption, recounting the glories of God's grace. And chapter 4, verse 1 begins with, Therefore... So, on account of all that Paul has set up to this point, he then moves into the obedience to be rendered. The law, the demands of the covenant life, the life to be lived, all because you've been redeemed, because you have been saved. Chapters 4 through 6 are the things to be done, but they come after the things to be believed about what Christ has accomplished and the salvation that has come in him. Second, and related to this, is the fact that as Israel's special identity and subsequent obedience would result in blessing, 
Well, such is the case for the church, that we likewise need to be firmly fixed in our faith that obedience leads to blessing. God has made the world in such a way, and we shouldn't be surprised that when God's people, that when we live in accordance with that way, that we are more prosperous, happier, and have a better grasp on reality than the rest of the world. And as our society as a whole deteriorates more and more, and keeps upon itself curse after curse that comes from being in rebellion against God, then that makes this conviction and pursuit of obedience all the more vital. For instance, and this is just one example, the church's sexual ethics has to be different from the world and in conformity to God's word. No-brainers such as a man is a man, a woman is a woman, and marriage is between a man and a woman only. They are bright lines right now. Those are pretty easy. Of course, the sexual purity that should be pursued before marriage as well as during marriage are other applications of these principles. We also need to be clear that having obedient children is part of our covenantal obligation and training and, dis- and discipling and disciplining them accordingly. You know, keep following Paul's logic, uh, his covenant logic out in Ephesians. And after, ma- after marriage, he addresses children and children obeying their parents and fathers not exasperating their children. See, we need to be committed to God's word and doing God's word, God's way and believing That is the way of blessing. Third, let us consider the exhortation in Hebrews 10. And that overlaps uh, quite a bit with all that we've been considering. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And note that the author's exhortation follows a covenantal pattern. Consider what Jesus has done. Consider the access we have in Him, the cleansing He's provided, consecrating us as a people, having been washed in the waters of baptism. Hold fast that confession, and then what? Stir one another up to good works. Push one another to continue striving in the faith and in obedience to Jesus, to pursue faithfulness to the covenant, and to be sure not to neglect corporate worship. And in what context is that exhortation given? As they see the day drawing near. What day? the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the collapse of the old order for life, all that they had known. It was the end of the world as they knew it, but they could endure because of Christ and the community of believers. Likewise, so can we, with whatever lies ahead, as we similarly give ourselves to covenant renewal Sunday after Sunday and encourage one another, not being hesitant to encourage and exhort one another unto even greater faithfulness and obedience to Jesus and His Word. You know, if you see a sister or brother floundering, if you see them foolishly pursuing sin or becoming overly discouraged, say say something to them as part of what our life together entails. Then finally, let us learn from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 29, which was the epistle reading earlier, and which is arguably a commentary of sorts on Exodus 19, 
that although we have not come to a mountain to be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest, the sound of the trumpet terrifying to all, but rather have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to God the judge of all, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, although we have this access, let us not refuse him who is speaking. And let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, God is still a consuming fire. You can't get around that from Hebrews 12. The writer confirms it. So let us check ourselves and make sure that we don't neglect to approach the worship of the true and living God with a measure of awe and reverence. Now, that doesn't automatically mean worship is dour and that there shouldn't be joy because most certainly there should be because we can all draw near in full assurance. But let us be sure to understand that this isn't the time for foolishness and silliness. You know, playing with toys or dolls or stuffed animals, except for maybe little, little kids, doing so quietly is fine. But, um, and, and don't be so distracted by something that actually might be funny that you then become a distraction to others. You know, funny things are said and do happen in the midst of worship, and they are rightly cause for smiling and laughter, and, and that's fine. Um, you know, there's, there's certainly a sense that our worship should, should reflect what it's like for a family to be around a table and, and talking and laughing and enjoying one another's company, especially when we're at the Lord's table. But we mustn't forget our table manners either. And admittedly, it, it's a bit challenging to find the balance in presenting this, and I realize our physical worship space um, doesn't exactly engender reverence and awe. But the early church was meeting in homes and not cathedrals or beautiful churches. So we can pursue the right kind of solemnity and joy by, by faith as well. Now our, our God is still a consuming fire. He has come down at Pentecost. And He consumes each and every one of us who've been baptized, who've been consecrated into the new covenant established by and in the body and blood of Christ. We're living sacrifices, and there's no part of us or a part of our lives that He doesn't claim to Himself that is to be consumed by Him through the pursuit of living according to His Word, His covenantal commands. And why? Because grace came first. And so our lives are fundamentally rooted in gratitude for the great salvation that has been given, for the unshakable kingdom of which we're a part even when the kingdoms and the nations of the world are unstable. There's certainly more going on in Exodus 19 than we may have first realized, and surely more could be said. And although it's taken a little while to make our way through, I trust it's been worth the time and effort for the knowledge gained of our Lord and Savior and the lives we are to render in service and obedience to Him. Such are the ingredients for the life in covenant with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that you are pleased to speak to us. And indeed, that Christ, our mediator, has come, who is the word made flesh. We thank you for the teaching of Moses. We thank you for Exodus 19. 
and for what is portrayed here, that our faith may be all the more firm and fixed upon Jesus, our Savior and King. May we indeed take to heart the exhortations this day and find encouragement for the life you've called us to live. And may we exhort one another and encourage one another and continue to fellowship, to have joy as we seek to faithfully serve you in this world, in this life, for the good of your people, for the good of the world, and for your glory. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.